Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us, every single one of us, every single day. We will hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. David, you good? I'm great, Peter. And yourself? I'm doing very well. I'm Peter Tilden, one of the hosts. And Anna Vicino is the other. Hi, Anna. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks to be had. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day medical to discuss things, all medical things. Today, we're going to be talking about insulin resistance, popular term. We're going to figure out what that is and also how it applies to now. I guess type one diabetics also have to deal with insulin resistance, but aren't they just insulin lacking? I don't know. We'll find out. We're also going to be discussing Alka-Seltzer. We're going to do a little 101. Kipper told me off the air. Can you confirm or deny, Dr. Kipper, Alka-Seltzer is frequently used for heartburn? I didn't know that. Thought it was just hangovers. We're going to talk about that today. By the way, and it's one of those campaigns, if you're of a certain age, and I don't mind saying, um, I guess I'm of that age. Plop, 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 fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. It's embedded in my memory forever. And a serious hate this just happened. Because anti-anxiety drugs or anxiety drugs are in high demand and short supply. Some people are cutting back. Some people are stopping. What you should know about getting off of anxiety drugs, because it can be very, very dangerous. And this is a very, very important, I think, an important topic to know. Plus, this is one of my favorite calls ever. If you get leg cramps at night, you're making deals with God. Because over a certain age, man, it's not just a leg cramp. It's debilitating. Well, there may be some real relief at hand, and it's something you can buy over the counter. And in some places, you can get two for a buck fifty. What is it? We'll discuss that with our caller when we do our hey, what about me segment. But let's kick this off, David, with our first topic, Anna. Okay, insulin resistance. First of all, can we just define what insulin resistance means? And then how could it affect people? I, I know it's a type 2 diabetes thing, but how can it affect type 1 diabetics? The reason that I thought this would be an interesting topic, we've been speaking a lot about these weight loss drugs, and they are all based on the problem that people have with insulin resistance. So we use the words insulin resistance a lot, but a lot of people don't know what that is. So I think it would be good to define that, and then we can go into what we do about it and how it affects our general health. So to answer your question, Anna, insulin resistance is a situation where the body itself becomes sensitized to the insulin that your pancreas produces. Here's how this system works. We have a meal, sugar is produced, insulin comes from the beta cells in the pancreas to take that insulin and to put it into the fat and muscle cells to create energy and also to store it into the liver. So the insulin's job is to move this sugar around at a certain point and in certain conditions the body doesn't do such a good job of this, and the body is sort of desensitized to the action of the insulin, and it doesn't work as well, and this is called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is at the core of these weight loss drugs and obesity and neurodegenerative diseases and polycystic ovary syndrome, metabolic syndrome. So there are a lot of things that insulin resistance has in relationship to our general health, not just diabetes. It is pretty common. It's not easy to diagnose. As a physician, you don't look at someone and say, oh, you must have insulin resistance. If someone is grossly overweight, that's a clue. If somebody has these skin conditions, 
that are called acanthosis nigricans, which is not that common, but these are sort of brownish macular lesions that you see on the face, on the neck. You can see them in the armpits. They're also associated with skin tags. So this is a clue that someone might have insulin resistance. But in general, we diagnose insulin resistance based on our fasting blood sugars, our hemoglobin A1C numbers. Remember, we talked about hemoglobin A1C just to refresh that conversation. Measuring blood sugar has taken a, a, a huge turn in the last 10, 15 years. We used to do just random blood sugars and we did glucose tolerance tests where people got stuck every hour for six hours to see how they did after they had a meal. And now what we're doing is that we're averaging a three-month amount of blood sugar in your system. And we do this by looking at a red blood cell. The red blood cells have a lifespan of 90 days, three months. And so we take a lot of red blood cells and we measure all the sugar content and we average that out. And that gives us an average of what your blood sugar is. It's a much more sensitive way to understand where our sugars are. And again, these are ways to diagnose this. It's not that simple, uh, not an overt um, list of signs that we see, but it's such a big problem with insulin resistance. I mean, we, we know, for instance, just prediabetes, um, if you're prediabetic, you have a 50% chance of developing diabetes over the next five to 10 years. So it's an important thing to understand. And insulin resistance, uh, is also implicated in type 1 diabetes, as you mentioned. It doesn't cause type 1 diabetes. The cause of type 1 diabetes is running out of insulin. Your pancreas just can't produce it anymore. So it's not like there's insulin there to be resisted. It's just not there. But if you're a type 1 diabetic and you're on insulin and you have insulin resistance, you're going to need much more insulin to control your sugar. So if, if you're a type one diabetic and your insulin resistant, does that just mean like your body just doesn't know what to do with the insulin? Like your, your yes. receptors aren't working or what does that mean for a type one? Exactly right. So you're a type one diabetic. We have to take insulin, right? In the form of shots and how we deliver it. Mm -hmm. And if we have insulin resistance, we are not taking that insulin that we're giving ourselves and it's not being used appropriately. We need more and higher doses of the insulin. And mm. again, those people that are prone to insulin resistance before they're type 1 diabetics are people that are obese. I mean, that's probably the biggest risk factor. Older people over 60 are more prone to this. If you have a family history of diabetes, you therefore have a family history of insulin resistance. David, why older people? The pancreas have given up? Yeah, it's tired. We've done enough. Yes, it's sort of running out of gas is what, what's happening. So does everybody who lives to be 100 have uh, some kind of insulin issue just because it's impossible to avoid? Or do some people, percentage of the population, pancreas yeah, operates until the... Yeah. Yes, as we get older, also with all other functions in the, in the body, they start to wear down a little bit. But this is a very common one. Also, if you're older and you go through a serious illness you are more likely to develop diabetes from any other illness for, oh. that, for that reason. Because type the, 2? Or type 1. Wow. Type 1. And the reason for that is that the general inflammatory changes that happen with these serious illnesses affect the pancreas and affect that, that functioning. The risk 
group is sort of interesting. We talked about people that are obese. We talked about genetics. If you have a brother or sister or a parent, you know, watch out, get tested. Uh, African-Americans, Asians, um, Native Hawaiians uh, are at a much higher risk for getting this. The lifestyle issues are things that we can guess. Let's guess. What, what lifestyle issues do you think would predispose to getting insulin resistance? Carbs. Yes. Diet. I mean, just pro- tr- processed. Yes. Eating a lot of processed foods. Yes. Alcohol, drugs. Mm-hmm. I can go for the cheapies, uh, lack of sleep. You got it. Lack of Not sleep. Not moving your body. Yeah. And being sedentary. Absolutely. Yeah. All of these things. And the obesity issue is interesting because what we, we don't know exactly how this translates, but we think that if you're carrying a lot of extra fat, that fat creates inflammation all through the body. And that inflammation affects the ability of the insulin to do its best work. So having answered that question, what can we do to prevent insulin resistance? Yeah, for real. So take every one of those things that you mentioned. So exercise. One one thing that's interesting about exercise, can you guess how exercise might help combat insulin resistance? It's interesting. Help inflammation? It releases uh, glycogen stores. You can burn them. I don't know. I'm making, I'm making well, up Well, I mean, you're, you're both hinting at an answer. That is that when you're exercising, your muscles, your muscle cells need energy, right? So they take up glucose. If they're taking up glucose because you're physically active, you don't need the insulin that's in your system to help transport it. It's happening all by itself. So you minimize the need for the insulin. When so you're wait, what you're saying is exercise is good for you? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Don't quote me on that, Peter. My God, this may have actually... He doesn't mean it. <laughs> this may have actually, for the first time, motivated oh, wow, that's good. to get off my butt because I'm going, wait a minute. But I also think it's not like uh, some of us are not able to eat, I don't know, let's say a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and the biscuits and the things and and then run it off. You know what I mean? Some people can do that. <laughs> I'm not. You can't run off the colonel. You can't. I can't run out. I can't outrun the colonel. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but that's a, that's a really interesting point, Anna. You don't have to run off the colonel. You can you can take a walk. And just by taking a walk, you're increasing the demands of your muscles in order to keep you moving. That's good. So, I like to walk. So you walk uh, to uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying I walk anyway, and I know I have to walk, but I have learned over the years that when I have, because I pushed the limit on my A1Cs and was like, oh, we're going to back this down. And so between exercise and making lifestyle changes, that's how I handled it. But I don't want to tempt fate. You know what I'm saying? No kernel for me. So everything in medicine is, you know, what kind of pill can I take so I don't have to sure. walk to the kernels and I don't have to get better sleep. And and there really are no great treatment. Metformin is a medicine that people right. always get if they are overweight or they're pre-diabetic. And it works on insulin resistance because it acts as an anti-inflammatory. And so going backwards into this conversation, if in fact you're obese and you have extra fat cells and you're creating inflammation, you're interfering with the ability of the insulin to do its best work. So anti-inflammatory medications actually have a value in treating insulin resistance. 
What about the new drugs that everybody's on to lose weight? Any benefit? Well, Peter, that's what really got me interested in discussing this because that is at the core of this. And so here's what these drugs do. The the primary thing they do is that they actually increase the amount of insulin that comes out of the beta cells. So let's say that you have some insulin resistance, right? And they're just not working as efficiently. But now you flood the system with insulin, which is what happens with these medicines, you're going to grab that sugar and push it into the fat cells, the uh, muscle cells, and store it into the liver and keep it out of the circulation. So that's one thing that it, it does. It's a huge part of how these work. I have a question. So just so maybe you can give some guidelines, like when people test their A1Cs, and, and this is born out of my own confusion. So one time I got an A1C of 5.6 and it scared me because on my like quest or lab corp or whatever, it said 5.7 means you're pre-diabetic. And that's when I learned, this was like five or six years ago. And that's when I was really more careful with my diet and it got it, but it was, hovers between 4.9 and 5.1. But then I see the commercials for these drugs that you're talking about, like the Jardians or whatever, things like that. And they're like, We've seen successes in getting your A1C down to sometimes as low as 7.0. And I think to myself, but isn't that still type two in the range of being type two diabetic? Like what, or is that just pharma trickery or like, what, what do we need to look for? Have they moved the guidelines? I know that's a big question, but hopefully you can answer that. No, it's a great question. And, and these numbers, you know, we're, we're also used to metrics and, and we're doing a good job because we've got this value here and that value there. But when it comes to your A1C, anything above 5.6, you have to pay attention to. It doesn't mean you're pre-diabetic. Also depends what country you're in. In Europe, those numbers are very much different. They're very lax. Really? And in this country, we're a little more strict on how we interpret these numbers. If you're in the sixes, you are heading towards diabetes. You are truly a pre-diabetic. If you're in the sevens, you're moving into diabetes. So if you are 5.6, you're still in a good place. And at 4.9, you're in a phenomenal place. But that's me being strict. But having these metrics allows us as clinicians to say to somebody, okay, look, your number is this. You now have to lose weight. You now have to start exercising. Doesn't mean they're going to do it, but I mean it gives <laughs> right. us uh, it gives us a platform to get yeah. people to to move, and we have a metric to follow. And you've given us choices, so we know the answer when we do the recap today. If you have a high A one C, you either exercise or move to Europe. <laughs> a much better, much better, it. safer number. I feel I so it. much better just getting off the plane. Next up, we're talking about Alka-Seltzer 101. And yes, Peter mentioned the plop, plop, fizz, fizz, which I was young enough to not understood what any of it meant. And I remember asking my mom, like, what is that for? And she goes, hangovers. So that's what I thought it was for my whole childhood. Maybe it's a wonder drug. I don't know. Dr. Kipper's about to tell us. It was introduced for hangovers. And that oh. really was a big issue. And that's where people started using this drug or it became popular uh, remember, there were liquid antacids and there were over-the-counter antacids, but it, it is now the most commonly used antacid for heartburn and reflux. I didn't um, know that. I had no, no idea. I didn't even know until you brought it up, David, that Alka-Seltzer still sells. I thought it was like a remnant 
than anything else on the shelf was still from the 60s. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was thinking of the cast of Mad Men just drinking their Alka-Seltzer. Right. Yeah. This is an interesting statistic. 15 million people a day experience heartburn. That's a lot of people. I mean, yeah. if you consider Awful. our population, 60 million people get it once, at least once a month. So it's it's out there. Alka-Seltzer's still selling for that reason. But it also treats hangovers. It treats body aches. And it does this because there are three different things in Alka-Seltzer, uh, one of them being aspirin. So aspirin is an anti-inflammatory. So it treats aches and pains. If you ever have a hangover, you think you're going to get a hangover. Uh, instead of the plop, plop, fizz, fizz, you can take a couple Advil before you go to bed and drink a glass of water, and you're going to get a similar effect because you're going to get the anti-inflammatory effect. Done it. Um, but it also, in addition to the aspirin, which is pain relieving, it has sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, and that neutralizes the stomach acid. And then you add a little citric acid in there. That's where you get your fizz fizz action. And it works. It, it really does work. And it works right away. That's the other nice thing about Alka-Seltzer for heartburn. There are some concerns with Alka-Seltzer, even though it's so common and everybody takes it and knows their jingle. Children, not so great. Because children, for some viral illnesses, if you give them Alka-Seltzer because they're not feeling well, uh, specifically chicken pox. So if your kids have the chicken pox, you want to stay away from Alka-Seltzer because the aspirin in general for kids with chicken pox or other viral illnesses that give them flu symptoms can cause a really rare but serious, almost lethal condition, Anna. Rye syndrome. Yes. I remember that when we were kids. We, my mom said, you're not allowed to take an aspirin until you're 18. No bear, no Excedrin until you're 18. That's what she said. I was like, Do you know what that syndrome is? No. It's a condition that causes swelling in the liver and the brain. And it happens very quickly. Oh, and this is basically a sensitivity that the body has with these viral illnesses. There's an association there. And specifically, like I said, chicken pox and a few others. You get diarrhea, you get you start breathing rapidly, and you're vomiting and you're tired, but that can actually go away and you're okay. But as soon as you develop a neurologic symptom like confusion or seizures uh, or any consciousness changes, you have to go immediately to the emergency room. And there's no real cure for this. It's just supportive care. But a lot of, a lot of kids die from this. I feel like they should talk about that more. I mean, I know you're talking about it, so thank you. That's why we're here. That's <laughs> our job. And not so good in pregnancy. The last um, no. three months of pregnancy, you don't want aspirin because aspirin will affect the, the delivery itself because it uh, diminishes the amniotic fluid. That's the fluid that surrounds the fetus, and that can impair wow. delivery. And in the developing fetus, it causes kidney problems. So... It's not safe for everybody, but these are a few demographics that you want to be careful okay, about. Okay, that's good All to right. know. That's why they say for kids, you're only supposed to give them like the children's Motrin or children's Tylenol. That's yes, safe, right? That's exactly right. And hey, this just happened, and this is this is very serious because right now the benzos out there, people are 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 cutting back on meds, Dave, in a big way because it's hard to find certain medication. I hear this every day from people. 
but one of them with life-threatening um, consequences, there's something you should know about cutting back on benzos or stop or trying to stop benzos addiction on your own, correct? Yes, and benzos, for the benzos are Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Valium. These are the benzodiazepines, and they're their function is to relieve anxiety. And there is a lot of anxiety out there. And so these drugs are pretty common. A lot of doctors don't know that this is habit forming. So they're easy to get. They work. Uh, there's a long acting and a short acting form of these. The Xanax and the Valium are shorter acting. They work right away. Clonopins, you know, last in your system for up to eight hours. And they're effective. So people take these. But what we're really doing with these benzos is that we're treating the symptom of anxiety. So there are other ways to treat anxiety. There are behavioral ways. There's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And there are other pharmacologies that do this because we've talked about brain chemistry on this show. And people that have imbalances in their dopamine system or their serotonin systems get anxious. Serotonin imbalances create anxiety and dopamine imbalances create agitation, but it all feels the same. And so people head for these these benzos. So if you're taking benzos for a long period of time, even at a, a, at a recommended dose, they're not made for long-term use, but people get these long-term. And you stop these precipitously, you're going to go into withdrawal. And a withdrawal can be as serious as seizures and psychosis and death. You can die from these acute withdrawals, especially if you're not around someone or people that can help you. So you have to be very careful. And to come off of these is, is also an art form. You have to taper people down from these. If they've been on them a long time, you have to taper people down. It can be six to 12 months before you get people off of these. And the people that get persistent anxiety syndromes, once they're off of them, they should be looked at to treat them with these neurochemical imbalances. So if you treat a serotonin imbalance person that has anxiety, it's a hallmark of serotonin imbalance, you treat with these serotonergic medicines if you're going to use pharmacology. And with the dopaminergic issues, there are, there are things to give people that have a dopamine imbalance that can treat their agitation. These are things like Abilify and Lamictal. And we don't just go to medications. We also have to look at the behavioral components. And there are great behavioral therapies out there. So it requires some understanding from the physicians that are prescribing these. But patients will often come in and when you question them about, well, how long have you been on your Xanax. And it, oh, I've, I've taken this for years. Well, do you take it every day? Oh, yeah, I take it sometimes three a day, two a day. And that's a real problem, but they don't see it as a real, real problem. Tolerance builds up. Mm -hmm. We've talked about mm -hmm. tolerance. So, you know, you do have these receptors, these GABA receptors that they're calming down. But after a while, those receptors, they dumb down and you need a higher dose. We've talked about tolerance. So, Tolerance is very common with benzos. So, so the more you take, the longer it's going to take to come off of them. David, have there been any improvements before we move on in um, treating addiction? Is the recidivism rate changed? I know it's hard, and and there's, but has it moved the needle with any new advances? We have talked about new drugs, new procedures. Has, has it moved the needle at all? Not significantly. And I think hmm. the big issue here is that we're not looking at this underlying issue of 
brain chemistry and how we treat the imbalanced brain chemistry. Now, there are, in fairness, there are a lot of doctors out there that are aware of this and treating this, but not enough. Yeah. It's hard to access these doctors. And the the clinics that we have, these 30-day clinics, you know, they're there to dry you out. But once they dry you out, they're not treating the underlying disease. It's heartbreaking because, I mean, if anybody listening or anybody here has addiction in their family, it's 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 one of the toughest things to deal with and and to navigate. And then the recidivism rate being so high, it's it's just this this loop. This you know, for a lot of people, it's round and round and round. They keep coming in and out and in and out. It's it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. And you hope at some point we break the code, like you said, enough doctors know how to treat it. Um, interesting. Hey, what about me today? that perked me up and i'm sure it's going to perk up our listeners let's give a listen hey uh, dr kipper um i have a question i, I wake up in the uh, middle of the night and i have really really bad leg cramps uh, i've tried all kinds of things and I, it's still going on is there anything that you would suggest that might uh, make it better or solve it somehow thank you there are some new things, interesting things, actually, as Peter mentioned. But my question to Anna, Peter, have you ever experienced leg cramps, nighttime leg cramps? When mm -hmm. I was pregnant, yeah. Yeah. And they're horrible, right? Oh, yeah. I got to tell you, when I was younger, if I got a leg cramp, it was a different thing. It was like, oh, like that. Oh, I can rub that out. Now, if I get a leg cramp, if it lasted more than the time it lasted, uh, and I had a gun. You'd be dead. You'd be dead. There, it is so painful. Yeah. So yeah, what do you do? Somebody told me it's so funny because when I knew we were going to be doing this, somebody I knew. I, I I mean, I know the secret. I know the secret answer is some. But somebody said I heard pickle juice, but I tried the thing you're going to talk about, and I'll tell you what happened. Why don't you give it up first? The secret. I am dying to know. <laughs> Spicy candies. What? Like a hot tamale or like a bingo. Yes, right on the money. A hot tamale. Are they sponsoring is, this show? Or? Is, is they should. <laughs> By the way, uh, Mr. CEO, hot tamale. Give us a call. So why is a hot tamale? Uh, there's also a drink called the hot shot. That's an interesting story. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, why does that work? It works because uh, they are giving you these spicy products. And there's a few of these. Cinnamon is one of them. Pickle juice, Peter mentioned. And the the one that's that is really the probably the main ingredient of all of these things is the capsaicin and the capsaicin is basically it's an anti-inflammatory but what it does is that there is a set of nerve fibers that modulate pain and these are called trp don't ask me what that stands for ask me but i'm not going to tell you because <laughs> i can't um and what that what the TRP does is that it it actually modulates these pain fibers that create the pain and it dumbs them down, it tones it down. And by taking the pain out of it, you reverse the contractions that cause these pains. And so these candies, um, <laughs> good guess, by the way, Anna, these candies contain these same things that, that promote or activate the TRP. Those are the capsaicins, the uh, the mustards, the pickle juice, the cinnamons. But this is an interesting story, how another product called Hot Shot was developed. Peter, do you know this story? I do. Well, again, I, prefer, I couldn't wait to get the information about this thing. So it's these guys who are like, 
athlete, big time athletes who were having all kinds of pain issues or cramping issues, right? They were big time neuroscientists. One guy was a Nobel Prize winner and the other was a Harvard uh, professor. I wouldn't call these guys big time athletes, but they were. <laughs> but they did what they did. They did more than me. And they, and they were actually because they were kayaking for a long period of time and they got all these muscle cramps and they, they didn't know what to do about this. So they took 10 years to try to figure out why they were getting these cramps. And what they figured out, these are the guys that figured out this connection between the TRP and those muscle fibers, and then how to calm those muscle fibers. And they came up with a drink called Hotshot. And Hotshot became very popular with the National Women's Soccer League, so it became a known thing. Um, the one drawback was that it tasted horrible. And so nobody would really buy this drink, but it worked. And again, had the same ingredients that the uh, that the candies have. I was hoping for a leg cramp, believe it or not. And I bought hot tamales. And I never buy hot tamales. And I had it sitting next to the bed, cracked open, cracked open and ready. So two nights ago, three nights ago, as I'm getting up, I get one of those, oh my gosh, this is going to kill me. I've never had pain like this before, leg cramps. Oh. And I reach with a little smirk for the hot tamales. <laughs> and I chew two. You got anybody want to guess what happened? You got heartburn. Nothing happened. It didn't help. Within, and I don't know the time, because when you're pain, time is not, not real. But I'm thinking within seconds, the pain diminished. Are away. you serious? Leg cramp, leg cramp ended like that. I swear That's to you. That's crazy. I, it was insane. I could not but I could not believe it. These were the like, kind of leg cramps where you get up. Like I said, you make deals with God. You try and walk around. Yeah. You're going, oh, my God. And then you think it went away. But you move your foot a little bit and it's back again. It's, it's one of those. Gone. Not a trace. But here's another thing that makes this important. A lot of people are taking statin medications, and the statins oh. can create leg cramps. Happened to ah. me, actually, a couple times, and which is how I sympathize now with people with leg cramps. And this was not a known treatment when I was getting my leg cramps. You had to walk around and rub your legs. And so for people that are getting leg cramps, from statins, I mean, you talk to your doctor, your doctor may want to change the statin, may want to lower the dose, but they're common. You don't have to be kayaking in the ocean for three days to get these. Another treatment, another over-the-counter treatment is Icy Hot uh, that's advertised on television. You yeah. rub that into your calf muscles and they go away. So here's some home remedies from Bedside Matters. I know. Free for all of you. I was blown away, I'm, but I'm not kidding, folks. If you get leg cramps, buy a couple I'm of hot tamales. I'm blown away by that because I thought for sure you were going to be like, oh, it didn't do anything because I think to myself, Anna, how could that work? And it worked. One, count to like, like, and I'm talking one of those major leg cramps. One, two, three, gone. Whoa. I didn't believe it. Even though I knew these kayaking guys were researching the whole bit, still goes, it's not going to happen to me. Give it a shot. Hot tamales wow. have them by the bedside. Yeah, I feel very lucky. Amazing. I then, then of course, I ate the box. It was two o'clock. I ate the box and stayed up all night. Sure. <laughs> but the leg cramps. Then you were gone. hyper. Then you got a cavity. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> leg cramps were gone. <laughs> then I got type two diabetes <laughs> from the hot tamales. But my leg cramps were gone. All right, let's do a recap of let's this do a amazing recap. show. Today we talked about insulin resistance.
very common. It leads to diabetes. Uh, you can do something about it, which is to keep your weight down, eat well, exercise. That will help. But stay in touch with your doctor if you have a predisposition with a family member with diabetes or your for men, if your waist size is over 40, and for women, if your waist size is over 35, you're at risk. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is for more than one reason. It has three things that help you, and the, the aspirin, that's the bicarbonate and the citrate, and it works right away. But if you are pregnant in the last three months of your pregnancy, or you're a, a youngster with chicken pox, Ask your parents to hold off on the Alka-Seltzer. Benzos, getting off benzos, you could actually you could actually kill yourself if you do it the wrong way. Do this under medical supervision. It can take a long time. And then when you're off the benzos and you still have your anxiety, which you probably will, see a doctor about some alternative, not just pharmacologic treatments that are not dangerous, but also some behavioral therapies that are accessible and and they work. And our caller Neil's question about leg cramps? So several over-the-counters, the, counters, the t hot tamales, the icy hot, and good luck. You're going to be blown away. I can see everybody. I want everybody to report back before next show to see if you got the hot tamales and it worked. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org, type it in, leave us a message, send us a card or letter, and Dr. Kipper just might answer your question on the air. And by the way, I'd like to thank, of course, Dr. Kipper's book is Override. We talk about brain chemistry every week and its impact on how you how you run your life or how it runs you. It makes a big difference when you know what your brain chemistry is telling you to do. So get the book Override. Also, Anna Vaccino. Go to AnnaVaccino.com. She's got the rubs. She's got the sauces, which I'm addicted to now. The spicy one. Oh, my gosh. She's got the books, the recipe books. And, of course, um, everything's gluten-free grain-free and it's all um, sugar-free it's all local sugar -free. hey you you listen to the insulin resistance thing you're worried you need something to cook go get my books and producer laurie creamy thank you so much for all you do i appreciate it let us know about your leg cramp. you get leg cramps too right i get this really weird one it's not a crack a, a cramp it's where my big toe goes like this and everything freezes and then i just have to wait it out it's that you're doing like this the Spock yeah, warning. You're doing the Spock, weird. the Spock thing from Star Trek. David, what's that? You're, she's doing toe Spock. Yeah, what is that, David? She's a Vulcan, but only on her toes. Boy, you finally stumped me. I have no idea <laughs> what that is. All right. Well, thanks, Laurie. Well, I'm just enjoyed glad it. I don't know. Anyway, so that. if you got a question for Dr. Kipper, other than that, reach out to us and thank you for listening to Bedside Matters. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday. Follow us, like us, have a great week, and send in your answers to Why Does Laurie's Big Toe Make a Left Turn When She's Sleeping? <laughs> the information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.